How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Don't give up on the Merrick. What would you have me do, Charles? I've heard these arguments before. It was a long time ago. Mankind has evolved since then. Yes, into us. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp. Your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, mutations. The Bob crew is kicking off a commentary series for the X-Men movies, well, because, you know, there's one last non-Disney X-Men coming out here, finally. Did you guys ever actually think we were going to get uh, the New Mutants? It was Harry there for a moment. I really thought it was just going to sit on a shelf forever and then someday, like, leak onto Disney+, Plus and no one know what to do with it. Thought the legend that would build there. It'd be neat. Yeah, everyone would freak out. What if they took, the like, a Cloverfield approach, and after the Super Bowl, they're like, the new mutants, go find it now, it's on Disney. <laughs> Anyways, I'm your host, Cody. Joining me for this bop and movie are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. Physics. And Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. The first time I kissed a boy, he was in a coma for nine months, but uh, that was unrelated to any abilities. He just, uh, just had a tumor. <laughs> oh, I thought you like blew him so hard, like uh, Scott Thompson pretending to be that angel in that uh, Kids in the Hall sketch. <laughs> Here's some wonderful deep cuts. Thank Can you. Send the commentary there before. <laughs> Thank you. Thank no you. one actually needs to listen to us talk about X Men. Now we're done. <laughs> uh, anyways, folks, we're going to be providing a commentary for 2000s X Men. Uh, the First one, the original. Da -da 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 -da. Uh, ridiculous CGI credit scene. <laughs> we are launched into oh, it immediately. Glowy, like luminescent 20th Century Fox logo from the uh, trailers. <laughs> that was always weird. No one knew what a superhero movie was. That was the that was the best part of the marketing for for X Men. Uh, we just have to throw some space shit in here. If it, it didn't have Batman in it, no one knew how to market it or make it. It's, it's the best part of X Men. <laughs> Right, the official drink for tonight. <laughs> I don't know how to segue into this, just back to booze. Typically, if you've uh, listened to one of these commentaries before, I give you an official box office pulp drink to drink along with the commentary. Uh, in this case, I have one written out. I'm like, this is the perfect Wolverine drink. And then I realized, 
if we keep doing these commentary series, eventually I'm going to have to do like three different Wolverine drinks. And I don't want to give one away now. So last minute I had to scrap my drink. I, also, I spent like hours last night just drinking rum and playing video games. And the thought of more alcohol right now makes me want to vomit. So for tonight's drink, the official drink of Box Office Pulp is Canada Dry Ginger Ale. Instructions. Fuck you. Pop that can open and have a nice drink. Now, would you say you're as disgusted by alcohol currently as Senator Kelly is by the mutant agenda? Oh, no, I can't hate alcohol that much. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to drink later tonight. So it's, it's, it's a fleeting fancy. You're just looking at some malt liquor in your refrigerator right now going, oh, I can't hate and fear you, buddy. I got two very fancy rums yesterday. I got to use them eventually. So anyways, folks, I hope you're enjoying a nice Canada Dry ginger ale. I also have some Gatorade, but, you know, you do you. Whatever sounds good. I mean, this would be the tie-in, like, for the marketing of X-Men, so I guess that makes sense. I, I also like the idea of the official drink for X-Men being, like, the most boring, plain human drink possible. <laughs> a regular drink for a regular man. <laughs> That's how I always order ginger ale when I'm on the airplane. They, Just the they friends of humanity sitting around, sipping Canada Dry. Enjoying how dormant their ex-genes are. <laughs> Fucking cucks. I enjoy having a normal-sized tongue, thank you very much. Yeah, where's our Friends of Humanity Netflix show? <laughs> This is going to be a good one. We're stupid. already on Friends of Humanity, so this is going to be a hell of a this thing. Is, this is stupid. Let's get to the Fucking movie. nerds. Nerds. Folks, if you've never listened to a commentary before, hello, the year is 2020. I don't know where you came from. What we're going to do is watch the movie and talk over it, and if you would like to do the same, well, it's a free country, kind of, so go ahead. Mike's going to give you a countdown in just a moment and start the film, so... On your end, you can you can actually pause the podcast, get out your DVD or Blu-ray, and, and go prep yourself. Or not. You can just listen to this as a very long podcast. It's your life. Again, I don't want to make your choices for you. I think that about covers it. Mike, do you want to start us off? I just want to say that technically we are recording this commentary in the near future. <laughs> that nebulous, who knows what year. Which I think, judging by the sequels, was like six months after the movie was released, so... <laughs> When they say not too distant future, they mean not too distant. Right, it was the far flung future of I actually think nineteen ninety seven. <laughs> Went backwards. Anyway, I'm gonna count to three. After I say three, we're gonna press play. One, two, three. Bam! Give me them X Men. Mmm. Goodbye, twentieth century Fox logo. I'll miss you. Uh, At least the fanfare is still there. Ah. Uh, You'll always be in my heart. See, I'd be perfectly fine with them changing this uh, going forward if the fanfare was Ralph doing it from the Simpsons movie. Just in <laughs> front of every uh, Alien movie from now on. I really appreciate that, that little extra glowing X on the Fox mm -hmm. logo. They still had to get clearance for. <laughs> They're so protective of the logo. They're like, no, 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 no. Corporate's got to approve that. I don't know they if the X can just... stay on there for 0.2 seconds more. I remember being in the theater, seeing the X stay there for a second. It just made me so excited. I don't uh, know why. Was specifically to make 12-year-olds go, <laughs> I'm watching an X-Man. 
I miss the giddiness of early superhero movies. Oh, like, yeah. Can you believe we're getting away with this? We're in for some shit. And, oh, man, when this movie started and there's that little bit of Professor X like, hey, here's what a mutant is. How exciting that was. Now when movies do, it's like, yeah, we know. Move on. Get to the action. It was so mysterious and new. Exactly, yeah. What a what a fun new set of toys they're essentially giving you. Like, there's mutants. There's people that can just do anything. That's and the concept. The you don't have to worry about radioactive <laughs> yeah. spiders or any setup. They just have special powers. They can do whatever. And, like Jamie said, now the Holocaust. They're from a James I'm... Bond opening to the Holocaust. I love the stories going around whenever this movie was released of people arriving to the theater like a minute or two late and missing that opening and just walking into this and immediately walking out because there was no way this was how the X-Men was opening. Well, if you didn't know any better, you would be very confused. Like this very stark, desaturated, sad-looking Holocaust drama. You're suddenly in Schindler's List. (laughs) Yeah. The boy with the striped pajamas is here. Like, what, what happened? That said, really brilliant choice to start the movie off this way. Like, throughout the entire series, the amount of goodwill you buy with this scene, like, you just understand the character of Magneto so well, the horror he's seen. You understand why he is not real keen on humans? Uh, That's what's great about Magneto from a writing standpoint. He has the most economical origin of any comic book movie. You just point to a photo in a history book and say, that's Magneto. And you don't have to say anything else. I think even beyond Magneto, like setting up Magneto so perfectly, what a, like it's funny to look back at this, like from an historic standpoint, where not only is this a perfect mood setter for the film and getting a lot of preconceived notions of, uh, out of people's heads when they're sitting in the theater, thinking they're going into like a, Batman and Robin, essentially, but yeah. also going forward into kind of the new era of comic book movies. At this, like, a perfect bridge gapper between what had previously killed the superhero movie and then where we are now. Sure. And so out of line with what, like, even the good, like, beloved superhero movies of the past had, had given us. So everybody likes to point to Blade as that great tone changer. And as much credit as Blade deserves, I don't think anybody really saw that as a comic book movie. No. Like, it's based on a property nobody had really heard about. If I remember correctly, I don't even think the Marvel logo is prominent at the nope. opening. Not till Blade Trinity. This, yeah, this was the first, like, actual read at clearly as a comic book movie, serious comic book movie. Yeah, we were releasing a superhero movie. And X-Men was fairly mainstream at that point because of the cartoon, so... Before we move too far past it, one thing I just want to double back on is just the power of that opening special effects segment. Like, we have gigantic action movies now where, you know, John McClane can shoot a Jeep into the air and crash a jet. And it doesn't quite work for me, but that bit where Magneto tears down the gates... It's not overly flashy. Like, I, they don't have to CGI a lot of it. I'm pretty sure that's all practical kind of stuff. But that sells it so well because it's all rooted really in emotional pieces yeah. for the character. It's, it's not a flashy, showy, cool piece of, hey, here's something we can do. It's an emotional extension of what the character is feeling at the time. And it, it just sells it so well. That 
stands out to me as one of my favorite comic book moments in any movie. Just it's so powerful to see that one kid pulling all the guards along with him through the mud as he's bending the gates trying to get back to his parents. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and there, there's something very grounded about it, too. It's like there's such force behind it. You can you can kind of feel the powers if it's real. It's, all the X-Men movies, I think, are very good at presenting superpowers, but particularly the the early ones have some of the best presentation of superpowers, I think, in all across the board of comic book movies. Like, there's... There, because there's moments where they're used in such a non-flashy manner. Mm-hmm. They're so just part of everyday life for the characters in a way that you don't get with other superheroes, where it's always very big and very flashy. Or, like, you know, when Captain America's chopping wood in Civil War and he pulls, like, a piece of wood apart. Now, it's a mm-hmm. big, giant moment, but you also kind of... You never get a moment of him, like, using super strength and, like... A very subtle way. It's only in those big flashy moments that have like a lot of meaning. This people just kind of do things casually in the X Men movies, particularly like starting here. And there's such a it was it's such a genius idea to make the first uh, three instances of mutant powers that we see come from a deeply emotional place, like whether it's trauma or lust or just survival in Wolverine's case, like. Up until, like, the big reveal of the X-Men, we don't really see any powers that are anything but just gut reactions to what's happening to these characters. It establishes so early on, okay, these aren't superpowers, per se. Like, these are expressions of the characters, like, deepest emotions. That grounds it in such an interesting reality. And though I I think it's really good they got rid of the the, the storm and and Cyclops flashbacks because you the three scenes that, that would have been like, a little much it would have been a little much too much flashback it would have been cool and I know they almost filmed them just for like to throw in like a DVD but you get the the Holocaust <laughs> I had the novelization as a kid so that was canon to me <laughs> so you get the you get the Holocaust flashback with Magneto using his powers so you set up like okay how like you you set up the mutant metaphor essentially and but then you go into rogue's powers which are horrifying and and damaging to her and then you go into the senate hearing so it's like everything about this world becomes immediately clear in such an economical like scene breakdown I don't know. I would have loved it if we went right from Rogue to a Jurassic Park animation of how mutation works playing behind you on a giant TV, which exists somewhere. I would give I want to see it so bad. And it's actually by the studio that did the fucking animation from Jurassic Park, because they specifically wanted that tone. I'm DNA. <laughs> and it would end if you do the original script before the uh, budget cuts and it's Beast standing there. But oh, blow your fucking hair back. All right, we've gone way past one little minor point I wanted to make. But in the rogue scene, I absolutely love the little bit of character that's added to the scene with the mother practicing the piano. Oh, yeah. And how she trails off when Rogue screams, discovering her powers. It's it's a completely unnecessary addition to the scene, 
but it has stuck with me for all these years as it's just a wonderful little bit of filmmaking. Just that trill as the piano, you know, goes off when they're like, what the hell's happening upstairs? Just a little bit of flavor that builds on this movie. One thing that kind of weirds me out when people discuss the X-Men films is how many folks say the first two are pretty much unwatchable now. And I, I don't quite agree with that. <laughs> There's definitely parts that have been dated, uh, especially if you look at some of the CGI and maybe some of the choreography. But altogether, there is still a lot to appreciate and enjoy in these films. I say this without having done my X-Men 2 rewatch for the next commentary, so maybe I'll be wrong there. But X-Men 1, I still stand by. X-Men 2 was the template for making superhero movies till the Avengers premiered. Yeah, all the early MCU movies just kind of went off of uh, X2, X-Men United. Also, so, this hey, is the I mean, uh, voice your... of Beast, and I... Yeah, I like to point that out every time. Because <laughs> he kind of looks like Beast. I know. Right, I think what's most interesting... about how this is in the near future, but... God, I wish they just put a date on there. Just make the timeline even more confusing. I think confusing. the novelization... Or, or no, it was a prequel comic, just put it, it does put it in 2000. I always assumed yeah. the not-too-distant future thing has to be a studio note, right? Yeah, it's because they're be. so no obsessed with trying to get it across that it's a sci-fi movie or something. Yeah, there's no reason to even put that on there. Otherwise, <laughs> when they're writing the script, they didn't think, oh, we need to let people know this is almost right now. I still can't believe that this scene was conceived long after. After the fact, because they realized they needed a better opening for Wolverine. <laughs> it's another one of those brilliant, like, screenwriting moments where it's like, oh, in a single scene, we can just establish everything you need to know about Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> and have them name checked as Wolverine and it not be awkward. Plus, there's just so certain details out of the way. <laughs> like, uh, the, the special, the, the sound effects for when Wolverine hits people or gets hit, you get that kind of metal thunk underlying things. Yeah, right there, it sounds like he's getting hit with an aluminum baseball bat. It's a God, setup. that always looks so fucking painful with his hand bending back. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is one of the most iconic character introductions, I think, in cinema. It's very weird watching, like, a, a young, young Hugh Jackman, considering <laughs> he's with the role for so many years. It's not like he's in bad shape here, but it's freaky now when you go back and watch something like The Wolverine, and he's just absolutely shredded. And this is him at his most shredded in the movie because this was shot like this was one of the last things they shot, wasn't it? Yeah, this is the, I think the last Lucy. thing, uh, one of the last things Jackman shot. So I will always love that we got a movie called The Wolverine with a dramatic scene of Logan finally claiming, like declaring once and for all that he is the Wolverine because that one line. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there, there's some amazing moments of symmetry in this very convoluted franchise. I, I love, I love stuff like that. Do you think when they bring Wolverine into the MCU, he's still going to be able to smoke cigars? No, probably not. Right? I mean, does he even smoke cigars? I'm, I'm trying to remember in some of the later yeah. X-Men movies, like in Logan, does he smoke? Yep. I mean, he ta he actually takes a cigar at the uh, gas station. Oh, that's right, yep. It's funny, Logan is like the only cigar boy in the Marvel Universe who's actually allowed to smoke. <laughs> ben can't, Ben Grimm can't smoke, Nick Fury can't smoke. 
I think I think it's just him and Jameson. It yeah. works out for him. I, well, I think it's because like, no one cares if Jameson dies. <laughs> and and Logan can't. So there you go. It reminds me of uh, Snyder being told in the set of Watchmen that <laughs> only the comedian can smoke because he's a rapist. <laughs> uh, okay, then. That's that's how that I works. I don't think that's how cigarettes work, but okay. Ah, <laughs> oh, this was oh. so cool in theaters. Just just an absolute mind-bending effect for like a 10-year-old to see in theaters. Oh, yeah. It's real! Coming out. Yeah! It's one of those things you take for granted because Wolverine is such a big part of modern pop culture. Like, in this moment, they had to very clearly explain how Wolverine's weird-ass random powers work. Because <laughs> fucking claws coming out of the gaps between his knuckles is actually kind of a weird concept if you're not acclimated to it. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you didn't know jack shit about the X-Men, you'd be like, why does he have bits of metal that can shoot out of his body? And he and he stabs people with them. Why? Why? Why is that a thing this character can do? Again, That's I kind of rag on the idea of the X Men because it's, it's just a carte blanche deal. Like, uh, whatever he can do this power or that power, or he can teleport, and this guy can alter reality, and this one can jump fifty feet in the air. It, there's obviously no real hard basis in science for any of it, so it's more like a fantasy. But if you're not familiar with that world and its rules, that can probably take you pretty far back like it'd take a lot to wrap your head around the concept i think that's what i think is something funny about the facts the the thing that kickstarted the superhero genre um as it's modern modernly known that, that that became an actual genre instead of just this kind of like side sideshow like circus thing with the batman movies and whatnot is x-men the most complicated thing you could possibly fucking make <laughs> well that's I know one of the things that like from the movie's premiere onward like, to this day that's always rubbed a lot of hardcore fans the wrong way is how scaled back and streamlined especially the early X-Men movies are but honestly I feel like that was the shot in the arm both superhero movies and the X-Men comics needed because th yeah. that almost immediately led to Morrison and his heavily streamlined X-Men run, which really brought them back to basics after years of very convoluted continuity for continuity's sake comics, especially in the late 90s. Yeah, this saved X-Men comic books, like in a big way. And I think it made it easier even for non-X-Men properties, for the general audience to start to understand comic book storytelling and how the logic of superhero stories work. So this is streamlined, but that made it so... Even the commentary, it's called out that X-Men 1 is kind of just a trailer for X-Men 2. It's like a proof of concept. And it's like the thing that gets all the exposition out of the way. Like, this is totally a, like late Silver Age X-Men adventure. And then you get to X2, and that's just like a 80s X-Men story. Like, just, just a normal fucking X-Men story. But this is, like, every little bit is like a 
puzzle piece, like being constructive. It's it's what's fascinating about listening to like the commentary track or going back to the behind the scenes stuff is you have to construct like how you show off their powers and each part of their powers and how their powers interact with the world and the superhero names and like why the superhero names kind of exist that they're not like just sort of code names but like mutant names are kind of like a concept and like the building of the costume it's why magneto shows up in like a cloak and a hat and then you see him like a red shirt with the helmet there to start like slowly establishing things the X-Men nickname thing always kind of struck me as very odd in this universe because Sinner goes out of his way to establish this as a much more grounded kind of universe and get away from some of the flashier aspects of the comic. But they have to keep the names because otherwise it wouldn't be X-Men. <laughs> so you even get a scene in here where Wolverine kind of laughs about it like, oh, what do they call you, Wheels? And it's it's a weird dig because he's also called the Wolverine and there's a guy named Cyclops. And Rogue, everyone gets a weird nickname that doesn't quite feel at home in this universe, but I'd be mad if they didn't have those names. And it sells you on it when the eye-rolling Han Solo character of this franchise fully accepts to just calling everybody by their names by the end of the movie. Yeah. Well, you just <laughs> okay. have Wolverine going, Cyclops, do have a shot. It's like, okay, it's, I'm, I'm there. They should have used this scene for like a thousand different... Uh, just like public safety awareness ads, like <laughs> click it or ticket, or you'll die through a window, and you'll suddenly be Australian right before the accident. <laughs> but I think a lo- we're a few minutes away from it. But I think a line that does really sell that whole uh, identity thing is Xavier saying that Eric became Magneto. I think it's very important that that's a line that comes after Logan mocking the names. Because you can read that exchange afterwards as Xavier explaining the reasoning behind the code names without expressly doing that. Like, no, there is Eric, and there is Magneto. Eric chooses to be Magneto. Our names represent what we choose to be in this movie that's all about identity. And really, this movie is pretty much the first time, at least in my recollection, that superheroes were treated as stories about identity, like in in film. Something that's become a gigantic part of superhero media after this. Yeah. Like the both seasons of Luke Cage are just superhero identities as metaphors for real life identity problems. The series. Oh, also just a side technical thing. Uh, can you guys uh, give your timestamp for the audience? We are at sure. one twenty-four oh eight. Okay. So here we have the introduction of uh, Tyler Maine as Sabretooth, which. Like, I really enjoy Tyler Mayne as an actor. He's always like that huge physical imposing presence that you want from these kind of roles. But this version of Sabretooth has never really gelled for me. He looks cool. He works looks, as like a cool, cool like movie henchman. Yeah, I mean for what the movie requires, 
is perfect. You don't yeah. really need to make him like a comic accurate version of Sabretooth. But as like a, a picky fanboy, oh, like yeah. that's it's one of those things where it's always stuck in my craw, like, oh this isn't this isn't this isn't my version of Sabretooth. Not my toad. <laughs> well, I think part it's... of it was as a, as a kid, like I never had money for a proper X Men subscription or anything. Like I I didn't have any comics where I like I knew they were coming in the mail each month, and we lived kind of in the middle of nowhere, so I couldn't get to a comic shop and like pick stuff up all the time. So for me, it was if I was reading a comic, it was something I either picked up at like a garage sale, and I just had to hope they had a couple of concurrent issues, or whatever was on sale at the grocery store. So I had like a weird mishmash of different comics. And I didn't really have any X-Men. Uh, I did have, for some reason, I don't know where I got them from, like four or five issues in a row of X-Factor. So that was like how I knew the X-Men. X-Factor was the thing in my mind. And the, the arc I had was one where Sabretooth joins X-Factor and then pretty much murders everyone in X-Factor. <laughs> So in my mind, you know, as a little kid reading X-Factor, he's this gigantic beast monster, horrible, deranged psycho that'll just murder, actual murder characters in a comic, which is pretty mind-bending to me at that age. And then you get to this version, and he's pretty much a near-mute lackey. Again, it fits what needs to be done in the movie, but my expectations were, were really dashed when I was like, oh, this is the saber tooth we get. Okay. I'm still disappointed by the uh, minimal dialogue with Sabretooth, mostly because I do think Tyler Mayne could pull off being slightly wordier. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. See Mayne and other things where he can totally pull off a Sabretooth performance. Yeah, I think so. He would have been good as like a straight comic book Sabretooth. <laughs> I did uh, a little bit of homework. I had to look up the issues I had, and it turns out I had like X-Factor issue 137 from 1997. Uh, if you look that comic up, the cover stayed with me for years. It's just this feral giant Sabretooth standing behind uh, a character. I had to look up this character because I completely forgot about him. Trevor Chase playing with the yo-yo saying, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your parents are? Which sounds cheesy, <laughs> but in the previous issue, Sabretooth murdered that kid's parents. <laughs> so that was fun. That was a, a nice little trip down memory lane for me. I should see if I can find those comics again. They're probably still sitting at my parents' place. God, the X-Men have so many halls of costumes in this basement. That's <laughs> They have two for some reason. Do you think Professor X uses his abilities to steal money from people, and that's why this basement's so swanky? <laughs> uh, Nazi gold. Like, he's obviously rich because he owns a mansion, but this seems excessive even for that. Uh, Shi'ar. No, no, you, you you have to understand, Cody. When Charles Xavier was a boy, he feuded often with his wicked stepbrother, Cain. <laughs> Keep going. Minutes, explaining. <laughs> Explain to me the history of the X-Men, please. And how Cain gets his powers to become the Juggernaut. Somebody needs to do an edit of this where he opens up a door and just Emma Frost and Banshee are in there. <laughs> <from> Generation X. <laughs> no, he opens the door and it's just their skeleton covered in cobwebs. Oh, shit, we forgot to feed him. I am convinced that other costume case we saw in the hallway is just the original X-Men who died on a suicide mission. Trick or cut to uh, Krakoa. <laughs> 
imagine if that's what they would have done as the prequel to this. Like the intro section isn't Professor X telling us what mutants are. It's just a five minute clip of them flying to that planet or that that island and all being murdered. It is Vulcans there in canon. <laughs> it is canon that that actually happened. Xavier just killed an, the A team of the X Men. Wolverine and uh, all the others were just his second option because <laughs> the X Men needed to be more dark. Don't talk about Vulcan. Physics. I, uh, I, I don't know why that line's been stuck in my head since I was a kid. I think it's the jolliness <laughs> of Patrick Stewart's performance. Physics. <laughs> He's very excited for that line reading. Waited all day. It also, once again, gets a great part of exposition across that, no, this is just a normal school. <laughs> you, you pick it up pretty darn fast. Yeah. Um, boy. There's so much going on in this movie. Like, it moves so fast, I forget that it's it's not even hour 45, which the movie just speeds through so many things and it has so much setup work to do, but it doesn't feel like you're getting exposition dumped to death. Unfortunately for me, that means I have bypassed, like, the proper time to do my movie facts, so <gasps> I'm just going to cram Go those in it. here now, I guess. All right. X-Facts. Direct X-Facts. Uh, directed by Brian Singer. And, boy, that's, that's a guy. Uh, I guess for people who haven't been paying attention, Brian Singer has a lot of allegation allegations against him. Uh, I don't plan on really bringing those up in the show in any sort of detail. And I understand it might be difficult for people to appraise and enjoy this movie, knowing, you know, the guy could be pretty horrible. So, uh, I guess uh, I'm, I'm mostly just trying to think of this as a separation of the artist and the art. And, Jamie, you had a very good point earlier when we were discussing this, how movies aren't made by one man. They're made by dozens, hundreds, thousands of different people. So even if Brian Singer is a complete monster, it doesn't taint all the work the other people put in. Solid Snake yeah, technically helped make this. <laughs> I, that was my next point. Screenplay by David Hayter. <laughs> <laughs> David uh, Hayter and, like, five uncredited <laughs> That still blows my mind. I did not realize the voice of Solid Snake was also a, a screenwriter. David so Hayter has such a weird career. He's like a superhero himself. <laughs> uh, for cast, dear God, what a cast this thing has. Patrick Stewart as Professor X, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, Ian McKellen as Magneto, uh, Sir Ian McKellen as Magneto, Halle Berry as Storm, Babka Johnson as Jean Grey, James Marston as Cyclops, Anna Paquin as Rogue, uh, even Sean Ashmore gets in here as Iceman, uh, Rebecca Romaine as Mystique, Ray Park as Toad, Tyler Maine as Sabretooth, and uh, oh, let's not forget Bruce Davison as uh, Senator Kelly. Holy shit, what a cast. Like, they, they knew they had names when they were doing this, but most of these people I don't think were as big of names at the time. Like, most of them exploded after this. Jackman so they, was just some dude. Yeah. And we had the Lord of the Rings movies coming, you know, right around the same time as this. So all of a sudden, Ian McKellen is a huge name. And everyone, except for Halle Berry, is perfectly cast. <laughs> I Halle love Berry was fantastic on paper. <laughs> I love on the commentary they mentioned like pretty much all of these people are from different countries and they're trying to do like an American accent, except for Halle Berry, who is from America and has to do an African accent. 
who had they had to tell to please just use her normal voice for X-Men because <laughs> it's all over the place in this. It's hilarious to look at the deleted scenes where she's laying the accent super thick, and I kind of think that's why they were cut. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, anyways, back to the X facts. The music here is by Michael Common. Uh, Common passed away in 2003, which is a shame because if you look back through his discography, he did several Terry Gilliam films, uh, Brazil, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, The Lethal Weapon Movies, Die Hard, The Dead Zone, Life Force, Highlander, Event Horizon, The Iron Giant, Memento. You've heard his music before and you've liked it. That's That's all I can tell you. So and he was brought in at the absolute last minute, too, wasn't he? Like, after they'd finished shooting? Yeah, because Ottman was Singer's usual go-to for editing and scoring, but he was off making something else and couldn't do either. So I think... Wasn't he directing Urban Legends, too? Yes, Urban Legends, too. That was it. And, Urban uh, Legends, too. Small fucking world. And I think they also went out to John Williams, who I think was also busy. So they get uh, got common. and. Honestly, like, Ottman's theme from X2 on is, like, that's the X-Men theme. Like, oh, everyone yeah. knows that, like, in pop culture now. And, of course, it's um, pure, you know, instruction to play off of the, the animated series theme, which is also what kind of, like, builds this theme. But Kamen's music in this, I think, is really underrated and forgotten. Like, all of his incidental oh, so music good. in this is fucking spectacular. And you think of the job he had in front of him, too. He has to introduce Singer's kind of grounded version of an X-Men reality. So that limits what he can do. I, I, imagine in lesser hands what you would do with an X-Men movie in the year 2000. Like, it'd probably yeah. be something fairly hokey. It might be something with, like, a lot of synths or electronics that just don't quite match up to what you're seeing. His more kind of classical score that he gave us really sells this world, and uh, I love it. I absolutely love the score here. Right, we're about to hear the Mystique theme, which is absolutely perfect oh it's so weird i have no idea what he's doing to make the noises so look at guy Rick just making bedroom yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a character i did not realize was supposed to be henry peter guy Rick until watching this with subtitles on last week <laughs> so this is an interesting uh. interesting choice when we first see mystique change it's through that window and she's out of focus to try and sell like the CGI of it. But then it cuts to another transformation <laughs> where you see it all up close. So I don't know why we had to get that shot twice. It's a little weird. It's just like subtly bring it in. Yeah. Uh, she actually hit him in the fucking face and knocked his glasses off. <laughs> what a choice for Mystique in this movie too. Butt-ass naked. <laughs> Blue, covered in, like, scales, but essentially naked. And as a ten-year-old, holy shit, what a... What a it felt what a like I was watching something movie. I shouldn't be. Exactly. Uh, I was very glad my parents weren't in the movie theater with me when I saw this, because I same. felt like I would have to explain to them what I had dragged them to. <laughs> yeah, but it's iconic. Like, that's what people think of Mystique now. Yeah. Instead of, like, the kind of white gown with the skull belt. A PG-13 essentially a family film. It would never happen today. There's so much in like these first two movies specifically that would never fucking happen today. Well, plus the pain in the ass to to get into that makeup every time you're on screen. If you think oh, of yeah. like most movie characters that have some prosthetics, 
they can hide a lot of that because it's like, oh, whatever, his chest doesn't need to be on uh, made up today because it's underneath the shirt. We don't have to paint him red. Mystique, always naked, always has to be painted totally blue unless she's going to do her shape shifting thing. And they Just could really huge the pain in the ass. And they could really, they couldn't even really film with her like two days in a row unless they absolutely had to. Yeah, there was a story Rebecca Remain told. I don't know if it happened on the set of this or X two, where her stunt double farted and it just created a giant bubble on her ass because that's how skin tight that was. <laughs> and they Jesus. had to shut down production to deal with that. <laughs> you would think like a pin would be enough to to fix that problem. You think? No, that- they had to squeeze it out, like roll it up oh, her back God. and ha- squeeze it out of a pocket in her shoulder. <laughs> Jesus Christ. At that point, just kill the poor woman. <laughs> and that's why Jennifer Lawrence just wore mystique-colored pants <laughs> in her movies. But if I'm not mistaken, like, mystique wasn't even really supposed to have action scenes. No. Uh, and they were initially going in. Like, that's why they got Rebecca Remain, because they just wanted somebody to pose before transforming. But the second the producers saw her in that makeup, they're like, no, no, she needs to be a big part of the movie. Nope. Smart choice. Yeah. End up working to the advantage. Most... Uh, thank God for that horny executive. Just end up working to <laughs> everyone's advantage. And create, like, <laughs> moments like this. Like, just yeah. Mystique yeah. hanging off of Magneto. It's and so ma- interesting. It makes her more than just a hench person. I love the little bit of character they throw in there. Yeah. yeah. I like how the choice of giving her these super physical action scenes restored something about Mystique's character that would have been lost in translation otherwise. Like, the idea that of all the people on both teams, Mystique is the one that can get shit done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back to my movie facts. Cinematography here is uh, from Newton Thomas Cycle. Uh, I think he's done all of Singer's movies. So Usual Suspects, App Pupil, uh, all four of Singer's ex-films, Valkyrie, Superman Returns, Jack the Giant Slayer, and even Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, but he's also done The Brothers Grimm and Drive. So he's kind of gotten all over the place in different genres. Uh, our editors here are Stephen Rosenblum, uh, Kevin Stitt, and John Wright. Wright? Uh, to bring this back to box office pulp. Editor on Deep Rising. Yeah. Uh, he also now worked what? on... <laughs> uh, <laughs> he also worked Credits. on Incredible Hulk, uh, The Running Man, Hunt for Red October, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. So he's done it all as well. Yeah, uh, the film do was... it right. Say the full title. <sighs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyways, this film was released on July 14th, 2000. Uh, budgeted at $75 million, it brought in a whole of $296 million worldwide. So, not too shabby for a mid-tier budget. Also impressive considering the amount of special effects that are in this thing. You gotta think, this was still in the age where if films had CGI, everyone just made the joke that it looked like PlayStation graphics. Now, we're still like a year or two away from the Scorpion King showing up. Oof. Yeah. It's funny that the, the uh, visual effects team weren't really that happy with any of their work. And honestly, at the time, this was like the most advanced CGI anybody had really seen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Wolverine, uh, 
whoop whoop whooping across the uh the spike on the Statue of Liberty is hilarious now, but I remember seeing that in the theater and my eyes melting. Oh, holy shit. We'll talk about that when it comes up, but that was huge for me as a kid. Yeah. But in this movie, I think the CGI has helped because there are otherworldly effects. They're not necessarily trying to be super, super realistic, which is kind of funny considering the tone of the movie is trying to be a little more on the real side. Uh, but you think, like, in that past scene when we saw that white glow cover the entire area, it doesn't feel like they're trying to do an earthly effect, which yeah. helps. Yeah. Some of the other parts don't fare as well, like when Wolverine cuts apart that guy's uh, shotgun at the start of the film, and, uh, you know, the, the pellets from the shotgun fall out. That That looks a little rough, but considering the age of the movie, I don't hold too much against it. There's hey, also look, a, a good continuity like, they actually held mostly too. Mm. Yeah. There's um also a good mix between practical and, and CGI that I think sells a lot of the CGI effects. Oh, for sure. That made Morriston very happy because <laughs> randomly he is like very passionate about practical effects and did not want this movie to be CGI. <laughs> he demanded on that rabbit movie he worked on that they actually breed some sort of uh, horrible mutation monster rabbit for him to act against. From the same lab they built Sonic. <laughs> oh, God. I love Marsden. I wish he was a bigger deal. He's fantastic in Sex Drive. Oh, God. As the greatest douchebag big brother in movie history. <laughs> I kind of do like a Love the Bombs on Sex Drive sometimes. Oh, yeah. I adore that movie. That so is good. the neatest sex comedy you've ever seen. <laughs> it really is a shame that Cyclops is a character not really given all that much to do in any of the X films. Like, they try and bring the character back in for the first-class films, and even then, doesn't make a huge impact. And even here, we kind of get a love triangle between Jean Grey and Wolverine and Cyclops, and I can't tell you why. Like, I, I have no idea why Jean Grey and Cyclops are together. We don't really get any scenes of them showing any sort of chemistry <laughs> with each other, or attachment, or reason to love each other. Except that one that was cut out. Yeah, this movie presents Cyclops mostly as the dick boyfriend who the protagonist has to uh, cuck by the third act. And it doesn't really give you any any reason to think otherwise. I, I could see a lot of uninitiated people watching this movie and just assuming Cyclops was going to end up being a brotherhood spy or something. He's still it is pretty wrong much... that they made one of their characters a dick. I mean, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, he's still pretty much just Cyclops. It's the most Cyclops Barzan ever got to fucking be. But yeah, if you there's if you look at like a lot of deleted like between deleted scenes and stuff that hasn't been released as deleted scenes, but we know we're filmed just kind of like longer bits. Like he's super Cyclops, and he's much more presented as like a, a as a team leader type and whatnot. But the movie's just so pared down that everybody's just I wouldn't say everyone's archetypes. Um because they're definitely showing off more personality than that. So that sounds derogatory, but <laughs> it's the bare minimum for everybody. <laughs> like this is so like 
boom, 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 super clean. Yeah, I remember Marston, uh, after the movie premiered, saying, like, I'm so glad there's this new thing called DVDs out now because I've never been in a movie with this many deleted scenes, and I really hope people can <laughs> Please watch me. Yeah, I'm always very torn when it comes to that because on the one hand, it is astounding how perfectly paced this movie is. On the other, I, I do come away sometimes feeling like it would have been a more rewarding experience to just slow this movie the fuck down in a few places. Like, the deleted scenes that have always been on the DVD, like which are mostly extended scenes, I think are kind of preferable to yeah. the versions in the film. Like, it's, it is kind of nice to just hang out with the X-Men a little, and really... There's two scenes in particular with Jean and Xavier that I think would have added immensely to the overall film, both because you get to see Jean showing a mutual attraction to Logan, which is only hinted at in the finished film, and it actually sets up her using Cerebro in the third act a lot more. It makes that feel more like a culmination of a character arc rather than just something that's set up at the beginning and then paid off at the end. And it's, and it's all very, very Jean Grey comic book stuff, too. Yeah. On the other hand, though, you know how everyone says, oh, the movie could lose 20 minutes. I think with X-Men, it's an hour 44, which means, hey, they actually lost that unneeded 20 minutes, and boy, that really does work. I think well, X-Men is what people are aiming for when they say a two-hour movie is too long. Yeah, I mean, not wrong. It's it's weird. This movie's such a, like, precocious balancing act of everything it has to get done. I, I couldn't imagine actually making this movie. I feel like I'd probably be just having one long conniption fit. But, um, I would like to see... As an experiment, like an extended cut that puts all those slow, like long X-Men conversations back in, those added character beats, both just to see the full, like the full version of this movie before it was, it was taken down, but also just out of interest to see, is it so much a balancing act that teeters it? Is like, this a would, movie that benefit from being slowed down or would that just kill it instantly? Yeah, I, I think that's just a really interesting editing exercise. Mm. There's a lot of unreleased deleted, deleted scenes that you can only find just watching the dailies in the production diary. Yeah. That are fascinating. Like that scene between Senator Kelly and Magneto before he activates the Magnetotron. Magneto. <laughs> Magneto goes on a long Chris Claremont Magneto monologue that is riveting to see performed by Ian McKellen. Like, kind of breaks my heart a little that's not in there. Yeah, I, yeah, that's the only place you can see it, and that's insane they've never released that. Because, like you said, it's Claremont as shit, but more than that, <laughs> McKellen is acting his ass off. That might be his best performance in this movie as Magneto. And it's and just it's, in dailies on the DVD. <laughs> yeah, it's just part of some B-roll. And it, and it's complex, too. Like, you get to see, like, Magneto do his whole, I would like to live with humanity. <laughs> like, no, I would absolutely love for man to 
and mutant to live side by side, but I've seen how you people treat people like that. One area where maybe the film does suffer from moving so fast is probably the scene right here. Like, Bobby gives this one, like, hey, people are mad, and Rogue just immediately leaves the X-Men. It's it's one of those things that maybe could be seated a little stronger, but you buy it, you roll with it. It's just a little silly, like, oh, one person said a mean thing to me, I guess I better leave forever. Yeah, you go with it because movie plot. Yeah, that's mostly and, and it. I feel it fits with Rogue's character up until this point where she's struggling with self-hatred and this idea that wherever she goes, she's poison. She's very easily broken. Which, by the way, I meant to bring this up in the first act. Another amazing screenwriting thing this movie does very quietly is like introducing you to Rogue and Wolverine up front as two transients crossing paths. It without really going into exposition, it sells you on the idea yeah. that at this point exposition. in history, mutants are not accepted anywhere. Like if you're a mutant, you're probably on the run, which sells the Xavier School as this haven. Like you kind of feel Rogue and Wolverine's wonder whenever they just see a peaceful place for them where everyone can coexist. Like, you can tell that's not a thing that exists anywhere else in this universe. Just moving out, we didn't get more X-Men that are visibly mutants. Yeah. I think you have a lot of mileage you can get with that when you have characters like Nightcrawler walking around where they really can't hide who they are. The world sees them right away and, you know, unleashes their prejudices. And that's just budget. Like, we were supposed oh, to yeah. have Beast and... It's like several other characters in the movie. And then Fox made them take out a significant chunk of that original script before they would even greenlight it. It What you're watching now is the the version of the movie that costs nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it just gets a little weird because like our mutants that have like outward mutations are the bad guys. Also, as a kid, like, my my cousin was a huge Wolverine fan, so we saw the movie, and he was very excited because his favorite character was, like, the main character of the show, which is expected. Wolverine's the biggest name when it comes to the X-Men. But I'm in the background, like, I like Nightcrawler a lot. I wish Nightcrawler was big. <laughs> <laughs> did you know Nightcrawler would have his day? And I was so excited in the theaters when I saw the trailer for X2. Oh, what a day. But considering the idea of the X-Men has always been, oh, it's an ensemble thing. We have this whole group of characters, and you can like that one or this one, hate that guy. And the fun is how they bounce off each other and the kind of behind-the-scenes drama of when they're not fighting bad guys, they're maybe arguing or building relationships. And the X-Films try and make that balance. But again, Hugh Jackman is such a notable force as Wolverine. All the movies kind of get tailored around him. Yeah. Not necessarily bad, but it just, just makes me wonder what the movies would be like if they're a little more fo- focused on being ensemble pieces. Go back to Rogue God, for a minute. Weird. Just, oh, just, yeah. I'm sorry. Just Marston looks so weird with just the visor and regular clothes. <laughs> oh, and then those, uh, the, the X-Men 1 visor. Pretty rough. Um, but going back to Rogue for a minute, something I've there's been always a lot, of, like a lot of complaints for like movie Rogue, and of course she's more 
based on early Rogue before the Miss Marvel powers, which I think goes over people's heads because of the X-Men the Animated Series. But yeah. people also, particularly in this movie, like, she's such, a, like, a, a damsel and, and whatnot, but it's something I appreciate about Rogue's portrayal of actually having her act and treated as a child. Like, there's no, unlike a Jubilee or a, or a Kitty Pride, who obviously she's an amalgamation of, um, she doesn't really have much of a call to action or anything like that. Like, she she never goes forward in that way. Um, she's just more, I, I think it sells a lot about the universe and mutants that they're not all fucking superheroes besides like her powers being more of a curse type thing just no one like all because you're a mutant doesn't mean you are all of a sudden like having action scenes and shit like she's just a child and wants to be a child and she's like being taken even by other mutants because of what she is yeah and sells you on the how necessary the x-men are yeah because whenever when that co concept's thrown at you i imagine a lot of people's first thought is Right, so if everybody's got superpowers, why the hell do they need the X-Men looking out for them? <laughs> also, guess that's Rogue up for, um, uh, you know, in this movie, a, a solid arc for her to become more comic book Rogue-esque. No, the goo. The goo! Not the mind poison. <laughs> I will say, as a kid, Watching this movie, my mind was blown when we get the reveal here that Magneto isn't actually after like, Wolverine. <laughs> He's after Rogue. I'm like, whoa! After all of that marketing. <laughs> like, I just never saw it coming. Like, it just seems like, oh, well, you, obviously the most popular character will be the one that's the MacGuffin. It would be hilarious if they kept the that re the reveal in the Solomon and uh, Chris McQuarrie script where. Magneto just needs his adamantium skeleton to power his machine. <laughs> Which is really I just Magneto need your skeleton to dance it. here for me. Dance, Wolverine, dance. Magneto is slumming it so hard in that version of it. Oh, yeah. I need this hobo with a magic skeleton <laughs> to power my doom ray. Don't oh, worry, you'll have it right I can back control, so I could just go get some. Thank God they changed it to Rogue. Jesus. We've and it's well such more Magneto this. plot, like not being really aware that he's he's killing a mutant to make a point about mutants. <laughs> I love that little bit of hypocrisy. It's it's a uh, well, no, I'm more important than you are, so it's okay if I sacrifice you. I'm I'm still needed for things. Don't make me kill myself on my super x-ray death device. Uh, we passed this by a long shot now, but I, I still want to go back to it. Uh, Senator Kelly pushing himself through the bars of his cage and then dropping into the ocean, only to emerge as a gill slime man. Ugh. Freaked Boy, me I, out. Very uncomfortable with that as a kid, yeah. Like, that was an amount of body horror I was not expecting in this film.
How does Tyler Mayne look exactly like comic book Sabretooth? <laughs> like, it's fucking freaky to me. I know I was complaining before about Sabretooth, but I, I do appreciate the choice of when he says his lines, they're, they're kind of whispered. Like, that's a neat contrast to the big bulking aspect of his character. Yeah. And they go out of their way to kind of show that he's a bit of a simpleton. <laughs> like, there's moments where he's like, kind of cocks his head and he doesn't understand how something happened or... Like when he when he comes back after failing to grab Senator Kelly and he's just holding like a piece of his clothes, like oh, I don't know what happened, boss. Uh, I was talking about this when we were joking about Toad the other day, which is I Toad. just I miss where I miss movies where even like the side villains with two lines were filled with personality and they were memorable and like you knew they were characters, and now it's like oh, Crossbones blew up in the first act. <laughs> I had a Toad action figure. I, I remember getting the novelization of the film to find out what happened to Toad after the end battle, if he was really dead or not. <laughs> Honestly, I think the closest modern equivalent I could think of that is, ironically, uh, Alexander Pierce in Logan. Yeah. Who's ultimately just a henchman, but you remember that fucking character. <laughs> I remember the the unabashed glory of seeing Magneto in the suit for the first time float onto this train car. He's and real. Wolverine <laughs> and do the Magneto thing of controlling his skeleton. <laughs> also, can we just stop and marvel at the practical effect of this train car that pulled itself apart? That nearly killed everybody. Because <laughs> it just I started shooting effects. fire at one point. <laughs> like, there's something magical about before overuse CGI when superpowers were were merged with practical effects. That's uh, the amazing thing we'll see in a minute with the uh, with Magneto raising and dropping the police cars. That is yes. so impressive, practically. Oh, yeah. Like, you feel the power of Magneto there in a way that you cannot, no matter how flawless the CGI pull off, like you need actual weight to something to sell Magneto's powers. That's why as cool as it is to see Magneto with his full like comic book range of superpowers in the uh, later films, uh, Magneto like lifting a stadium around and then dropping it in front of the president is nowhere near as impactful as what we just saw. Oh, not at all. Yeah, and it's the simplicity. A couple, years, a couple years later, like in Hellboy, when Hellboy slams his fist down onto that oncoming car and it flips over his head. Like, what a cool thing that is! Because you, you can tell, like, oh, that's a, that's a car. Like, not a CGI version of a car. It presents so well, and it just sells you on what just happened. Whereas later in the film, when Hellboy is fighting the CGI tentacles, it just doesn't quite work the same. Just air. Yeah. CGI will never be able to sell impact, I don't think. Like when those cars land on each other. Oof. That is cool. You can you can feel that kind of impact. Well, it's, it's amazing all these years later, the movie's not particularly good or anything, but the first Fantastic Four movie, when a practical suit thing fucking, like, tackles a semi that's practical and it crushes practically around him. Oh, yeah, that perfect trailer shot. 
Yeah, it's like, that's awesome. That's just, that's all real at that point. Also, this was a very cool fucking moment when you're an X-Men fan the first time this happened. Oh, Charles Xavier is controlling Magneto's underlings. <laughs> and they're having a fucking standoff where Xavier must decide if he's willing to let Eric take a life for his beloved X-Men. It's it's the best. They're not just punching each other. There's a kind of intellectual yeah. standoff happening here that I love. I, I think yeah. it's really cool. The, the design, like the design thought process going into this movie was more of less like big bombastic, like, and this is like post independence day. So it would have been easy to, I think to go into that direction, but like, let's look at like an, one of the old, like intellectual sci-fi films. Like, that's kind of like, does like, that's what X-Men is more like geared towards style wise. So let's go for that. Yeah, it's far more Forbidden Planet than it is uh, Superman the movie. Yeah, which is what the comics, like, want and, and need. I think you even even lose that with uh, some of, like, the best stuff coming out now. Like, there's still, like, uh, I'm more pushed towards, hey, you still got to get that action scene in, like, every ten pages. That, that was what was so great about the third act of Doctor Strange, where Doctor Strange uses Doctor Strange logic to solve a Doctor Strange problem. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and people think of that, I, I think, is one of the more popular and memorable MCU final battles. Yeah. You always get the complaint that the ending comes down to two guys just having a massive CGI brawl. But that one, people remember, you know, Dormammu, I've come to bargain. I think that says I don't a think lot. that would have worked here if Wolverine just comes in and says, Magneto, I've come to bargain, and then just has his metal skeleton pulled out. But... <laughs> if this was written by Grant Morrison. <laughs> uh, it just becomes Fatal Attraction. Just <laughs> out the oh! God. Just, okay, just to bridge this back into the MCU. Isn't it insane to think this movie, 20 years old, and we've been getting a steady clip of superhero movies ever since this came out. Mostly because this was very successful. Uh, the Spider-Man film that came out two years later was huge. We had stuff like Blade. There were, there were a lot of small and bigger successes right around here that built up the notori uh, notorious nature of comic books. They could be actual box office hits. But everyone said that was a bubble. And they've been wrong for decades now, which weirds me out. You really would think at a certain point people would get tired and be like, nah, we've, we've had enough superheroes. But considering how much money things like Endgame have made, uh, Captain Marvel, Black Panther, and the latest Spider-Man have all made over a billion dollars worldwide, people don't seem to be tired of superheroes in the slightest. And the genre keeps introducing new, different avenues it can go down. Hey, comic books haven't gotten sick of superheroes yet. It's dance the reason uh, movies wouldn't burn out on them. Yeah. People are really sick of comedies. I think the comedy bubble's about to burst. <laughs> Also, I just want to say I love the logic Senator Kelly is using this. This is like if Ted Cruz realized he was transgender tomorrow. I was like, I have to talk to Laverne Cox immediately. <laughs> Speaking of, we missed this moment earlier, but I just want to talk for a moment just how beautifully written and performed and very essential I think to the heart of this series 
that scene with Logan and Rogue in the train car is. Oh, yes. Like, one of my favorite moments in this entire series is that quiet moment where Logan says to Rogue, this, these people seem to want to help you, and that's rare for people like us. Like, there is something so powerful to me about that moment where Logan says, like, for the first time, people like us. Like, these, uh, this middle-aged drifter and this teenage girl who have absolutely nothing in common up until this point are united by the fact that they're both part of the same people. And that's, it's something that uh, has grown to mean a lot more to me. Uh, as I've gotten older, like, there's a lot of bullshit involved with being queer, but one of the absolutely beautiful things about it are those moments you have with people, sometimes with perfect strangers, people you have nothing in common with who will come to you in moments of solidarity like that and say, hey, we're in this together. And I love how X-Men is able to give you stuff like that like without without ever really needing to like be super on the nose about it or preachy like uh, X-Men as a concept is often given a lot of flack for being uh, as De as Deadpool put it an out of date uh, metaphor about racism from the 60s yeah. but stuff like that shows just how universal this could be like there's something like as weird and broken as the x-men can be there's something universally flexible about them there's something perfect about x-men at its core well i think you can always use the x-men to represent whatever minority group you want to talk about like i think you always will have persecution from the minor uh, majority force it's maybe it was uh, about civil rights in the 60s, but today, just as easily, you could take the same messages and apply them to uh, people following different religions or people that are queer. Magneto, in particular, is unfortunately an evergreen and constantly relevant uh, character. Yeah. You can look at pretty much any persecuted people on this planet, past, present, or future. And you're always going to see that that schism, that faction that's going to say, look, I, I don't care like what pie-in-the-sky dreams you have about everybody getting along at some point in the future. I'm going to look after me and mine, and if I see a threat coming, I will eradicate them without a moment's hesitation. Like, Look on Twitter for five minutes and you'll see <laughs> a lot of Magnetos out there. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, we have two very different viewpoints on how to deal with their situation in Magneto and Xavier, which is great. You kind of get that both sides because, like you said, in any situation, if you think about resistance or support, no one's going to be of the same mind. You'll kind of break down different camps, and those camps, even though they're on the same side, won't necessarily agree with each other and might turn to infighting. Frequently does. Twitter is terrible. Twitter is just stupid X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> My power is I can ultimate X-Men in small blurbs. <laughs> Pretty much. It has the tone of Ultimate X-Men. <laughs> uh, speaking of stupid, 
Xavier spinning around, going, oh, oh and then falling out of his wheelchair is the funniest fucking thing. <laughs> That's the moment he became Professor X. His first, ah. Uh, oh. You are driving me insane. God, I love this speech by Cyclops to Xavier. Ah, oh, such a, a great, like, perfect encapsulation of Scott, too. Like, as shortchanged as uh, Scott is in this movie, you almost don't have to say anything else about Cyclops. Like, that's the character in a nutshell. Yeah. Xavier is his father. The X-Men are his family. All he cares about is being worthy of taking care of this family the day of eventually the father's not there anymore. How annoyed do you think Patrick Stewart was that when he had to play comatose, they had him keep his eyes open? <laughs> I think he just was excited he got to show off his uh, chest hair. <laughs> I've, been, oh, I've been working on this for you. Uh, Stewart has a mane. If I ever play a comatose in a film or something, I really hope they just allow me to act like I'm dead. Just like, just lay down. Don't worry about the breathing thing. Just close your eyes. Take a nap. That's perfectly fine. Don't act. Yeah, it's a shame. Right before he landed into this coma, he had all of his skin <laughs> replaced with plastic. I know he doesn't look real, but he's real. <laughs> That's his mutant power. He's the living mannequin when he's sleeping. So I love how the Brotherhood is the supervillain team where every member is the mute assassin. <laughs> team composed entirely of odd jobs. That's why they're so efficient. Can't argue if you don't talk. Oh, God, we're moving into one of the most iconic superhero third acts in history. And it's amazing that it's still iconic after all these years. For all like, of its simplicity look, and, you know, it's not particularly bombastic or this huge scale, but... yeah, Jack, It's a nice bit Jack of symbology that they actually have to fight over their ideologies on the goddamn Statue of Liberty. Like, yes. <laughs> it's pretty on the nose, but it gets the point across. And the X-Men and the Brotherhood have conflicting feelings on what that statue means. It's amazing that years, like decades later, you can have Jackman tell Patrick Stewart Liberty Island was a long time ago. And that sends like a silent wave of recognition through the audience. Yeah. Like, wow, that, that really was their finest hour. That's why it's uh, such a shame that I think so many, f I use fan loosely here, fans have uh, decided to change uh, the thoughts around this, around this film, this series in general, but like, you know, this film in particular, this is just, you know, this old thing, it was, it, it wasn't X-Men, which is kind of hilarious when I think actually it becomes more X-Men with time, when you have less of an idea in your head of what the X-Men are based around, like, the particular time this, this movie came out. Um, Mike, they're not wearing yellow and blue uniforms. It's not right. <laughs> no one's pointy at all. 
it's not X-Men unless there's Colossus and Nightcrawler getting into shenanigans and fastball specials. I love the the story they tell, I believe on the commentary, that McKellen's thought process for acting that scene was Eric has a daughter out there somewhere. Maybe she's passed away. Maybe he just doesn't have a relationship with her. But somewhere out there, there's a daughter of Magneto. And in that moment, he's talking to Rogue as if that little girl's in front of him. I just love how that just came from McKellen's head. <laughs> very, very Magneto. Yes, I know. <laughs> so to go back to uh, the uniform switcheroo and what is real X-Men, there's so much ground to cover in this film and so many concepts to introduce and some kind of far-out stuff. I can understand why more staples of the X-Universe aren't introduced. But as a fan, you're still, you still have to be a little disappointed little pieces don't slip in, like the Danger Room. Yeah. I think the Danger Room was the first thing they had to cut out to get greenlit by Fox. Yeah, well, if you think about it, it's just a training room, so by nature it's probably not that important, and also going to be very expensive to do. So I totally get why it's not there. It's just something you like to see. It's part of the identity of the characters. Yeah. Or like so, yeah. the Sentinels, but again, this isn't a Sentinel story, but... When you think X-Men, you think the Sentinels. God, we really haven't discussed, like, the production crunch this movie was made under. Like, half of the things you can complain about in this film came about because they had one of the tightest shoots in film history. Everything went wrong. The main character had to be recast a month and a half into filming. And then Tom Rothman calls up Brian Singer and says, yeah, uh, Spielberg's doing AI in, in, in 2000 instead of uh, Minority Report for us. So we got a hole in the schedule. Can this come out six months earlier? We're not giving you any more money, by the way. <laughs> a moment frozen in amber thanks to B-roll. A I moment where you get to see Singer look into ca- look into the camera that's recording him, and then just walk off. <laughs> As everyone starts screaming about how much money this is going to cost Fox, <laughs> just promotion-wise. The first thing anybody asks is, but they're giving us more money, right? For trailers. Trailers <laughs> and posters. You know, the essentials. Yeah, they they were told, like, Rothman just called in the middle of shooting to say, it's a July 4th movie now. And Singer was over the moon because he thought he meant July 4th, 2001. Like, oh, we can actually make the movie we wanted to make. <laughs> no, no. This movie has to come out six months early. God. Even the costumes, which, while the concept behind the costumes was very much... An aesthetic choice on everybody's part. Nobody was happy with how they actually turned out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Front. Well, just imagine performing in a full leather outfit like this, too, and you're supposed to be in a stunt-heavy set. Like, well, they couldn't move. That's why or, by the like, end, you can just see that Wolverine's costume is just in shreds because it was the only way he could fucking move. Just fuck it. Let it be torn. We'll just say it, got, it would happen <laughs> in the fight. 
So I do have one thing to say uh, about uh, the complaints about these costumes. That's stuck in my crawl for years. Yes, it's very, very funny that they're supposed to be superheroes and can barely move around in the fight scene. That's also really funny when Batman <laughs> cannot fight at all in literally any Batman movie up till The Dark Knight. Yeah, where's all the complaints for that now? Yeah, we just love that. Like, <laughs> seeing Batman do a full body turn every time he has to look to his left. That's a fun quirk of the movie. It's and most of, most of the X-Men characters don't even need to move, so it ends up not mattering. Yeah, Cyclops literally just has to point his face. Like, even Chris Claremont was relieved whenever he found out they were just doing, like, X-Men 1 bodysuits instead of trying to replicate the comic book costume. I think the word he used was disturbing. <laughs> God, that would be so weird if they were just... Like, if everyone had fins on their heads and they were all in primary colors. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Like, like if you look X back at the films, Apocalypse, they end up in the uniforms at the end is a bit of a stinger. And those didn't look great. So it's it's a hard look to pull off. I can see why they didn't go that route, even if it's a little nondescript compared to the cool colors we're used to. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I was bummed out. Of course. I think by the time I'm sitting in the movie theater watching this, I don't care about the fucking costumes anymore. Um, yeah. And really, and now looking back, they're just going off of early X-Men comics where they're all, like, they're a team, so they're all in uniforms that all look pretty much the same. Just, they went with something that were like, okay, leather would protect them. They went with black, so they weren't garish looking, which, you know, they did at least try the different colors. They just could never get it to work. Costuming, to co costuming, like I—it's weird to use technology, but costuming technology was a lot different than what you're able to like put together now when it comes to costumes. Oh yeah, and to be fair, like those Jack Kirby costumes were blue for black anyway. Yeah, yeah. like they're just supposed to be black and yellow. Uh, can we take a second to go back and talk about Ray Park as Toad? <sighs> Always. Because one, I enjoy the fact that he actually gets to talk in this movie, unlike, you know, Phantom He's Menace where they overdub him. Yay! But, I, God, it's such a weird choice to have Toad flip around that metal bar and do a Darth Maul pose for the camera. <laughs> that was oh, deliberate, yeah. too. Like, no, oh, we yeah. have to wink at the camera. <laughs> like, acknowledge that you are Darth Maul, because everyone in the audience is going to be going, Is that Darth Maul? Yeah, it's just such a weird meta choice <laughs> to to bring it up so blatantly. <laughs> and I guess like the the character is portrayed as a uh, a bit quirky in this film, you know, like he does yeah. the thing right before that, so it's not totally out of character that he might do some acrobatics and flips like that, <laughs> but it still bothers me. And then it's teamed up with the kind of awkward edit to Cyclops blasting down a door. And for some reason that that Cut never worked for me. I, it just bothers me. A little awkward. Speaking also, Storm flew, and her eyes yeah. are shooting lightning. That must be very painful for her. <laughs> but Storm's powers have never made sense. They don't need to. It's okay. It's fine. I, I don't mind the powers. It's just the thing everyone in the world has already complained about for years. Just what a line of dialogue to finish Toad off to. Thank you, Joss Whedon. 
<laughs> Honestly, even the way Whedon wrote the line, like, it's supposed to be, like, very flippant, and this is just how Barry decided to deliver it for some reason. It still doesn't work. It's still just not a good line. Oh, I love the moment in the commentary where the producer screams, it croaks there. I fixed the line. That's actually a joke now. That should have been the line. I And I say this as a person with a deep love and respect for one-liners. That should not have been a one-liner. That, that was... Oof. I am confused by the people who have maintained for years that that line ruins the movie. <laughs> people it's are silly. stupid. You roll your eyes and then you forget about it ten minutes later. It's, it's just one of those things where it's like, boy, I can't believe that survived the edit. I can't believe they kept that in there where they easily could have just cut it out. Like that that was a uh, 2000s message board staple. Oh, yeah. Also, this was also very cool when you were a kid because Wolverine used his senses to detect he mystique knew. in disguise, the most comic book thing in the fucking world. Well, it's, he it's, stabbed it's... somebody and they fell down. Yeah, that there's too. something amazing about Wolverine actually fucking somebody up. I but it doubles really up because we get him fucking do. people up. And then we get this moment of him calling Cyclops a dick. Which, Fantastic. I mean, let's all admit it. Funny the other line, line from Joss Whedon. So it balances out. <laughs> that this line is works. really good. The other one's very bad. They, they, they're they mediocre together. God, I'm a superhero I do like that antagonistic relationship between these friends, which is nice. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got a team, everyone needs different personalities, and you should have some sort of personality clashes that are driven through, you know, their actions. Uh, so yeah, here it's nice that two characters don't actually get along. And the general audience really ate up the relationship between Wolverine and Cyclops. Like, they dug it. It was like kind of a, you know, the, the two heroes of the movie thing, like going at each other. I think it was kind of old movie for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something that reverberated back into the comics. Like, people kind of lose sight of the fact that the Logan, Jeans, Scott love triangle thing, and like the animosity between Wolverine and Cyclops was not that huge of a deal until like the 90s comics and the uh, the animated series, and then it didn't become a super big deal until after this movie. Yeah, it was there. They just, this is where they, like, really extrapolated it. Well, the thing I appreciate in the film is there's not a, a moment at the end of the film where Cyclops has to destroy the pace of the film and be like, hey, Wolverine, we don't agree, but goddammit, I respect you. <laughs> like, they, they don't have to stop the show to do that kind of cliche moment of understanding. You get these guys don't like each other, but they're still a team. They're going to work together. Yeah, and you, you still get it a little bit, like, but it's it's very subtle. It's just, like, when Cyclops shoots Magneto to give Wolverine a chance. Right. Yeah, that it's doesn't like, need oh, to be stated. That's something you can just do and let the audience pick up. Like, yeah. You don't have to hit us over the head by explaining it out loud. That's something they, they never really, like, feel the need to fully re resolve. Like, the cathartic moment of union between those characters like in this entire franchise just them holding each other after gene dies in x-men 2 yeah still a great it's moment much, it's that and guys just the spoilers <laughs> we'll get it's that, that in the button <laughs> it's pretty much that in the button at the end of days of future past where he's genuinely very happy to see cyclops again which is a yeah. beautiful moment 
As I look at Magneto just owning the room, showing these <laughs> X-Men what for. Even oh, without is... his hitches. <laughs> this is, yeah, a fun moment. Again, it's not a brawn situation. They have to figure out, using their smarts and skills, how to get out of this situation they've been trapped in. I like that. It's it's more creative action scenes than just a full-on brawl. And Logan has to solve this all these problems the Wolverine way, which is hurting himself over and over and over. <laughs> and Scott must briefly lose control. I like how there's a deleted scene uh, of an extended conversation between Gene and Wolverine where Gene explains <laughs> Scott's need for control. He could blast a hole into the side of a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he doesn't live over near the mountains. It's too risky. Also, That's goddamn it, it wasn't until rewatching this. I mean, we're not there yet, but I always took like, oh, it's like X-Men 3 and um, Apocalypse. Like those are the move. Like, those are the X-Men movies that end with them using teamwork to de defeat the villain. <laughs> I forgot like, oh shit, they do that here. Like, this is super X-Men teamwork. Like, after Wolverine takes out Sabretooth and, and gets everybody free, they utilize teamwork where they all combine their powers to defeat Magneto. Uh, and tagging up on what uh, something you were saying earlier about seeing a superhero team fight villains, if I could just hold the infinity gauntlet in my hand and snap one thing into existence with modern superhero movies. It would be having teams of supervillains be a thing again. Instead yeah. of just oh, yeah. the Avengers fighting an army or a robot army or well, an alien army. See, this is an infinity gauntlet thing. This is like a, a corrupted genie wish because we did get that with Apocalypse. And I don't know if that actually was satisfying. It was for me. Highlight of, I'd say that's the highlight of Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, third act Apocalypse is awesome. We'll get there. We'll get there. I'll I have issues revealed. with Apocalypse, but... <laughs> this scene! Oh, it's coming! Oh, oh, here, oh, yeah. oh the fireworks! Oh, and just, it's oh. fucking spectacular. Look at it. God, that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in theaters at that point. Like, as a 10-year-old, just watching Wolverine flip around the Statue of Liberty. One, like it wasn't just the... campaign. Yeah, it wasn't just the stunt, though. It was the fact that like, I had an awakening in my mind that, oh, the camera actually followed him around. Yes. That was, like, an impossible move. That's not something, yeah. like, they could actually go out and film normally. How the hell they did that? Boy, that was... Yeah, even, even watching it today, I still kind of get chills, even though the effect has become a little dated. So cool. Also, I love how in this third act, Sabretooth is fulfilling the role that Blob usually fills in X-Men fights where he's just a giant pin cushion for Wolverine's Blob. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting choice. They stuck with a little bit of comics deep lore that uh, Sabretooth takes, you know, Wolverine's dog tags. It's never really explained in the film at all, but it's it's just a neat little touch they threw in there that was uh, probably confusing to other folks. Who yeah, didn't it's bother. weird to think that Sabretooth is going, oh, hey, it's my long-lost brother James. Yeah, <laughs> they're not saying anything to him. Uh, they, uh, and Sabretooth uh, is dead forever. <laughs> goodbye, Lee Schreiber. Um, 
Yeah, like the Macquarie scripts and whatnot had Sabretooth still no Wolverine and whatnot. I don't really know. I guess they just got pared down because they wanted to save a lot of, like, have Wolverine's memory be 100% blank, so anybody knowing who he is. So I think they still wanted to hint at Sabretooth knowing Wolverine, but didn't want to say it out loud. They probably had plans to have Sabretooth come back in some form. It just never fucking happened. I believe so. I'm going off, like, 20-year-old memory, but I do believe (laughs) Maine talked about, like, after the movie was done, that there had been at least discussions with him about coming back in X-Men 2 and being part of all the Weapon X stuff they had planned. Yeah. That would been neat. Toad, they have no excuse for. God damn it, why'd you leave behind? <laughs> he was having non-flashbacks. He had to get therapy. I really, like, when the movie was being produced, X2 was being produced, I was following all the news to try and figure out, like, well, is Toad back? And <laughs> Is Mortimer yeah. Toad to be coming back? <laughs> I want Sabretooth and I want Toad, God damn it! How are we denied a, a battle between Nightcrawler and Toad? Come on. Oh, man. made for each other. Flipping shit. Ah. Uh. Being vaguely swashbuckling. <laughs> Seriously, I, I don't mean to, like, shit on, like, modern superhero movies, and I'm, I'm not with this, but this is literally a, like, ending moment coming down to Wolverine's gotta, like, scratch something. And it's honestly more affecting than a lot of shit that comes out as far as, like, third act moments go. Part of this is nice because we are getting a lot of reaction from people that are in harm's way. That helps a lot, yeah. A lot of action movies now are kind of in a bad spot where if you include random civilians getting just destroyed by superheroes doing their job, it puts everything in a bad light. So you don't include those people, and then other people get mad because those people aren't around, so it feels like there's no emotional stakes. I'll say it would have been hilarious if Cyclops just shot Logan in the back. It's like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> took care of the guy trying to fuck my wife. <laughs> I lost control. <laughs> then he puts on his sunglasses over his visor. Also, uh, you know, dramatic hair reveal here. <laughs> Look, you people have seen the cartoon. We gotta, we gotta let you know how that happened. Like how they just they decided to make her hair more comic books than it needed to be. <laughs> uh, uh, this is still years later. Just the Wolverine theme to me. God, what a oh, good yeah. piece of music. I remember this entire sequence reducing me to tears when I was watching this as a ten-year-old. Because it's not really something. As far as I'm concerned, I've never seen a scene like this between Rogue and Logan in the comics or any of the cartoons. Like, this this was kind of mind-blowing for me as a kid. Like, oh yeah, that's absolutely what would happen if yeah. he took his healing factor. Oh no, she's stealing all his collagen, his old wounds. One of the reasons I w- really wish they kept in that line, uh, uh, and I, I think it's a a line that you can see in the uh, the B-roll. No, just bring it up in the commentary. The I know what you're talking about. Yeah, where he says, I would like to show you all the scars from when I tried to kill myself, but they are, they're all gone. 
Like, God, if they kept that in, I would add like even more weight to this, knowing oh, how, yeah. how all all of the wounds opening up are like some of them are from battles and some of them are self-inflicted. I suppose that's a little bit like the Incredible Hulk deleted scene where, like, he tried to eat a bullet. Like, yeah. Eh, but it's probably it's a like, little darker than what they need. Yeah, considering they couldn't get in there in, like, 2008, that probably was not flying here either. And it would make such amazing symmetry with Logan, too. Yeah. Though a lot of stuff that didn't make it into any of the finished films are still canon in the X-Men films, so... Hey, we finally got uh, Cyclops losing control at the prom 20 years later. Girl. They should have given us like a Phantasm 4 kind of deal where they just took all the deleted footage and eventually <laughs> rolled it into another X-Men film later. That should have been the real X-Men origins. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of this extra footage. That can make up like 30% of a film. Oh, also we missed the origin of the Phoenix uh, earlier. Which I remember that moment when I was a kid, seeing Gene be affected by the mutation machine and going, oh, are they going to do that? <laughs> Could they? And her, her powers is. do... Her t powers do grow at an alarming rate in X-Men 2. They kind Spoilers, of... Spoilers! Comic come books. On. Well, you know, it's, it's a series we can elude. <laughs> <laughs> also, could you imagine how much differently that scene between Rogue and Logan would have played if it was Doug Gray Scott just being a stoic? How much do you think, how, how popular do you think this series would be if Doug Gray Scott was Wolverine? I, I think Jackman being the sexiest slash most charming man who ever lived was a significant factor in people falling in love with these movies. Could not imagine. I don't even mean to like shit on Duggery Scott as like an actor. I just could not. I think he would have made a good Wolverine if it was like a 90s B movie superhero where everyone's just like their basic, most basic of archetypes. Yeah. Where Wolverine was just the angry guy. Like that if it was just angry like Wolverine, you would have been good. Multifaceted actual comic book Wolverine? No. That's Hugh Jackman. It's amazing to think Jackman owes his entire American career to Scott getting injured in a motorcycle accident while filming Mission Impossible 2. Oh, it was it was numerous things. It was it started with eyes wide shut going long because Stanley Kubrick is insane, <laughs> which ended up making the filming of Mission Impossible 2 go long. Between that and him getting injured, there was absolutely no reason for them to keep him on as Wolverine. <laughs> and so he was contractually obligated to go back to Mission Impossible 2. But he had his Wolverine hair grown out, and he had to shave it, and it really just caused a lot of conflicts with the film. <laughs> Plus, CGI was plastered over his head to try and get the look back, and it was too expensive. It's just amazing 
seem to think Jackman owes his stardom to multiple bad films happening to one other unrelated actor. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, when we when we eventually do uh, the Mission Impossible movie, it's like we have to stop just in the middle of two and just give thanks for that movie's <laughs> craptitude, giving us X Men. <laughs> Thank you, Mission Impossible Two. Pour Woo! one out. Mission, Mission Impossible, the the, ser- the series that can give to superhero movies and take away from superhero movies whenever it feels like it. <laughs> it creates, it destroys. Like Tom Cruise, it's an angry god. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, Cyclops deserves to have his vehicles stolen if he's just not going to chain that fucking thing up. Like, is he's, he's just leaving the keys out there? Ah, the birth of one of the most iconic little bits. Just, these heroes will play chess against each other. Also, Magneto's in a gigantic plastic bubble prison. I'm fascinated by the fact that they had to ship in a chess grandmaster to teach Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen how to play chess. That thing they could have just told them. I just, yeah, I, I just, uh, I assume people that distinguished automatically know chess, like inherently. It was very surprising to me to find out neither of these men. It, it is really weird. It's like I know more about, than Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart when it comes to one thing. <laughs> nice. I got that. That is a man. Like Ian Mc, uh, Patrick Stewart is a man who, like, was listening to classical music and reading a tome of forgotten lore in his trailer one day whenever like, I think they were like caught in a blizzard or something and they had to go to Patrick Stewart's trailer for warmth and he's just sitting there like the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> oh, Brian, you're here. <laughs> Can you imagine anyone else's uh, Professor X at this point? No. Like, it's going to be so weird when they try and bring these characters into the MCU. Because at this point, we've had 20 years of these guys really just absolutely nailing and owning the roles. Like, it's already very weird when they recast them as younger versions for first class. And yeah, even Mac- then, they try to hint, oh, they'll merge into the actors you know eventually. Yeah, as, as much as I love McAvoy uh, as Xavier and, and think he's really great in the role, it also, it's sold by the fact we know he's still Patrick Stewart Xavier. So it's like, it's going to be hard going from scratch. It's, uh, who knows? I mean, the MCU's done a very good job with their casting. I'm sure they'll find very talented people. Though apparently Patrick Stewart was asked if he would just play Xavier again. (laughs) Smart, but I also think he was wise to say, no, I've been doing that. I I did Logan. I can't up that. But we did it with J.K. Simmons. We can do it again. The floodgates have been open, which I agree 100% as a good decision. If you can get J.K., get him. Oh, I am so obsessed with that final shot there. I think I, I that really fascinated me in the rewatch was the tone this movie takes anytime it portrays anything superheroic or anything that's specifically like a comic book idea. Like, like we talked about throughout the commentary, this is far more of a sci-fi movie in tone than a comic book movie. It's honestly comes across more as a thriller until the third act. Like, X-Men is a movie about 
a college professor trying to prevent his uh, insane Holocaust survivor friend from committing an act of domestic terrorism. And the uh, superhero aspects are secondary. Uh, even Cerebro... It seems very Dead Zone when you describe it that way, really. <laughs> even Cerebro is portrayed as a very cold, spooky, sci-fi thing. But it's not to that moment where we see uh, Magneto's reverse Cerebro, which uh, imprisons him instead of setting his mind free. Ha ha, subtext. There's something about that last shot of his comic book prison score blaring gloriously after they established with that conversation. We are going to be doing the Magneto and Professor X thing forever. Like It's like that's the moment the movie officially steps into comic books. Yeah. Just sets the stage perfectly for X2, which is comic books from start to end. <laughs> oh, it's like it throws a sheet off of itself and goes, aha, it was a superhero movie the entire time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that giant plastic prison says it better than anything else can. There's definitely a shift in what they're going for. The moment you see this uh, really impractical prison they have designed for Magneto. That thing that's so iconic, that Magneto prison is just a trope now. <laughs> yeah, Magneto prison is a fucking phrase in the zeitgeist. Especially with how much play it got in X-Men 2. Just such a smart decision. Like, they, they knew what they were doing. Oh, yeah. I know people were coming to that theater to see the Magneto prison. People, after X-Men came out, were fucking obsessed with the Magneto prison. It's such a cool idea. Whatever. Like, I went to see this with my parents. Like, I think, like, o like not opening weekend, but close to it. Ah, so and... you had to explain to them the naked blue lady? They were very happy with the naked blue lady. I'll have you know. Oh. Uh, one of the one of the uh, best nights of my life, and I remember on the drive home, my dad was impressed with two things more than anything else. One, that Wolverine and Cyclops had their comic book rival, <laughs> and two, how clever the plastic prison was. Like he was over the moon with how much of a comic book idea that was that made and the, the fact that it made magneto cooler in retrospect yeah. it really does it sells you that oh this is the most powerful mutant alive they have to go to that length to house him <laughs> well, I, they probably could have just shot him or something too but you know <laughs> with Again, what oh, rubber bullet no, just... Robert, yeah <laughs> That's a good point. How do you murder Magneto? You can't just drop an anvil on him. You, you just know. stab you him with a wooden like... stick. Yeah. You, you a lot. poison gun from Existence. <laughs> oh, God. We keep getting this closer and closer to being a Cronenberg joint, and I don't think it's actually that far off. Hey, we have new mutants coming out. It's true. Months, so, yeah, we're going I mean, we already got some body horror in this one with the fish people. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot We've of seen skin. <laughs> seriously go look up the the generation x pilot which is like on the internet a hundred times over nothing in any of these films is as terrifying as how skin's stretchy power portrayed in that and he's in the mansion from this movie so it's even more surreal i don't even like you saying like stretchy skin power just stretchy skin 
I don't like it. It makes me actively not want to see a new Fantastic Four. Chamber's mouth on fire. Oh, God. X-Men is actually kind of horrifying when I think about it. It's real horrifying. Out of herself. I don't, I don't like I X-Men. Let's not X-Men. do this entire no. film series. Just just imagine the horror of living in the X-Men universe. Like, you'd be born a mutant, but, like, everyone else has cool powers, and yours is like, oh, you vomit uh, scorpion tails out of your mouth. Deal with that. Hey, we live in a world where Zeitgeist was briefly in a 20th century Fox production. Shit's canon. That weird, <laughs> weird character. Can I just take a minute to say how happy I am right now? We're, no. We can talk about, like, X-Men shit on the clock. Like, I'm allowed. And we're doing, <laughs> like, hour, the entire hour, series. Hour. I'm so happy. We've got, like, 20 <laughs> more hours of talking about X-Men in front of us. I'm oh, going to wax so poetically, even about the bad ones, somehow. Look, I really just did this because I wanted to talk about how I think Nightcrawler's pretty neat. Nightcrawler's so, pretty neat. Nightcrawler's pretty neat. We don't even do X-Men 2. You've gotten all of your Nightcrawler talk out. <laughs> I mean, I, I got my main point across. I think Nightcrawler is pretty neat. We could do like eight more movies to get that point dragged out, but I already said it. But Don't you love how we get to come back around? Like you get to talk about how neat Nightcrawler is. Then we take a break for a couple movies. And then we get to talk about how neat Nightcrawler is again. <laughs> Let me all remind you that Nightcrawler is pretty neat. I'm blue. Wonderball. He's a Nazi, though. Like, he's probably a Nazi, right? Like, he's German. Oh, God. Could you imagine the opening of First Class? Or instead of uh, panning from the concentration (laughs) camp over to Kevin Bacon, it's fucking Nightcrawler in an SS uniform. Oh, it's young Nightcrawler, too, so it's even weirder. It's Cody Scott McPhee. Yes. (laughs) Just sipping tea. Don't don't ruin this for me. Let, let Nightcrawler be neat. Don't make him a Nazi. Let I mean, Nightcrawler did... be neat. <laughs> he does disappear into a hell dimension whenever he bounces. Yeah, just briefly. His father briefly. may or may not be a demon. Uh, yeah, that was always confusing. I forgot we do meet as Nightcrawler's father in first class. Another yeah, bit right. of character continuity they just don't bother really explaining. Well, it's because even they realized, oh yeah, this is Azazel. How, where is it, maybe we should say this for two, how, how does, where, what is the parentage of Nightcrawler right now? How does that stand continuity-wise? It's the same. Okay. I just assume everyone's parents change like every five years when it's, uh, you have super parents. Uh, Hey, Claus Bedelt. Uh, no, he's, um, Nightcrawler isn't like, um, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Okay. Is Mystique, now, like, still hinted at being related to him, or what's what's the deal with that situation? No, Mystique's still uh, his mother. Okay. Now, what's far more interesting is the uh, unused ideas for various X-Men parentages. <laughs> like, technically, for... according to Claremont, Nightcrawler's supposed to have two moms. Hmm. No. Sabretooth's Wolverine's dad. And let's not even get into the fucking Scott Summers family. <laughs> that third brother that may or may not exist. 
and that fourth brother that may or may not exist. Hey, hey, I'm Vulcan getting... exists, whether we like it or not. The fourth brother, on the other hand, is oh, up for God. debate. I'm glad the credits are done because I'm getting angry just thinking about this. The, 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 no, let the me tell you about the history no. of Vulcan, the no. third Summer's brother, Folks, who came back to revenge after he was a member of the original Thank X-Men so team, listening. dying on the island of Krakoa. Man! <laughs> 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 and then we can get into Adam X the Extreme. No, everyone the real shut up. Third Summer's brother. If anybody wanna wants to ask me, I have a pamphlet. His blood explodes. No, that sounds horrible. Folks, he this, is. Is, this has been Box Office Pulp. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can find more Box Office Pulp at boxofficepulp.com. We're on Twitter at Box Office Pulp. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Facebook, you name it. Box Office Pulp is us. I'm I'm still workshopping that phrase. Don't don't take it to heart. We're not going to put it on a t-shirt or anything. I like it. It's it's all right. And Mike, where can they check you out on the interwebs? Go to horrormovieshub.com. You can see all my ruminations on horror movies and, you know, occasionally I'll interview somebody, hopefully, a little more often. And uh, check out Final Girl Productions on YouTube. Ah, and speaking of YouTube, I have a new YouTube series, Comic Macabre, which you can find a link of in the description where I talk about uh, bits of obscure and weird esoteric stuff in the world of comics and horror. You left me hanging there. I thought there was going to be like, and I have another show I'm just announcing. <laughs> like there was I, was hoping that you, I was hoping you were doing something with your life we didn't know about. Oh, God, no. I'm going to make a frozen about, pizza. <laughs> I think about making a lot of PowerPoints. <laughs> I am going to make a frozen pizza, though. So thank you for joining us, folks. Get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Mike, can I just say uh, you defeating Cody by shouting X-Men continuity at him like you're Mr. Dark is the greatest <laughs> thing in the <laughs> I don't understand and I don't like it. Just ripping pages out of my uncanny X-Men omnibus. <laughs> Scott Summers. Hope Summers. Nathan Summers. Nate Summers. Rachel Gray Summers. If it's Mr. not in the X-Men animated series, I don't want to hear about it. Scott and Jean were created by Mr. Sinister to give birth to Cable so he could defeat Apocalypse in the future. An idea given to him by Cyclops, who traveled to Victorian the Victorian era, what? and met a young Nathaniel Essex. Oh yeah, and technically uh, Cable is named after Mr. Sinister because of that nice man named Nathaniel Essex that Scott Summers met. Boom! What? Stupid! Why is this so dumb? Bootstrap, cap, bootstrap paradox. What? This is awful. Technically Scott is his own father. Uh, why? Why? Ha, just do a reset. Just fuck it. That was Earth six one seven. That one's garbage. We don't don't worry about any of those things we just said. Claremont has a and wicked tongue, Cody. A space pirate. Piratical. I hate X Men. X Men are dumb. And turning the recorder off. <laughs>